1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where are we going? How did we get here? Where's the readme file, etc., etc. Today, we have a couple panelists on. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. Justin Dorfman. Hello, hello. And me, ahoy, ahoy. And we have a very special guest today. They're all special guests, but this one's also special too. We have Caitlin Thaney. Hi, everybody. Caitlin is the executive director for Invest in Open Infrastructure. Caitlin, can you tell me what that is, what you're doing there?
0: So Invest in Open Infrastructure came out of a couple of key elements and events in the broader space. So uh, literally it came out of an event called the Joint Roadmap of Open Science Tools, an event back in 2018, where there were a number of different individuals in the open research space, infrastructure providers, advocacy organizations, et cetera who not only met to map out the broader landscape of open research tools and tools for scholarly communications, but as a part of that, had a separate side conversation about the broader sustainability and fragility and how we're looking at sustaining these tools in a very tangible sort of financial way. Most of the space, as many people that listen to this podcast might know, is supported by a handful of philanthropic organizations. Some might be able to get some broader institutional support, but you really have just a, a, limit, a couple limited pools of capital that really make it difficult for, say, an institution to convert completely to an open tool to know that that's going to be around for you know the duration or be sustained in a way that is meaningful to that project. So that group got together and said we should really come together and explore what it would look like to really change the way that this is is going rather than just bemoaning it in the hallways of these various events. That also was kind of building on a couple of different events in this space, including some acquisitions of key pieces of infrastructure that the research community relied on. Tools like and resources such as the Social Science Research Network, which was acquired by Elsevier, B-Press, which was also acquired by Elsevier, some of these non some of these for-profit. There were a number of other research tools that in the last i would say 5 to 6 years have been acquired not only because it became a an issue about the financials but also because many of these organizations were looking for abilities to further scale and feel support from a broader organization and on the other side of things there were also motivations such as you know what sort of data can we gather through the tools and usage that is tracked through these systems so that these larger companies could better understand the usage patterns, the information about the scholarly system, and commercialize that for for-profit reasons. And so Invest in Open Infrastructure started with a coalition of individuals. We have a 20-person steering committee, which is very representative of some of the individuals who are part of those initial conversations. And in 2019, was able to receive some support through Schmidt Futures to really turn that into something that is staffed with person being me and see what we could start to do to create a, not only a clearinghouse for these sorts of resources to help elevate the conversation around what sustainability and durability looks like for community owned and operated infrastructure, open tools and technology, but also help serve as a catalyst for these sorts of conversations in the space, but rooting that in an evidence-based sort of fashion, which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about.
2: I, I do have a question. So when I read over your documentation, what I understood when I read it is that this is an organization built to create, essentially, is it just the technology behind these infrastructures? Is it primarily focused on ways of sharing data? Help me understand exactly what the end goal is in very, very simplistic terms so I can understand it.
0: No, it's a great point. Um, And worth, worth caveating by saying that my first day on this job was also the day that New York City went into lockdown. So I'm about 10 weeks into the role. So there's been a number of different efforts led by members of the steering committee to help build momentum in the time prior from 2018 through this past March. But part of, I think, what, you know, you're articulating, which I totally hear, is the fact that as we start to move this stuff forward, you know, better communicating that. What I see IOIs sort of value add in being... And in particular, I mean, I'll get to in a second how this reacts to the current moment in time and how it reflects sort of the current moment in time. But so there were a couple of different schools of thought. One in terms of, OK, for IOI, not necessarily in building the technology. There's a lot of people that are doing that. More so in terms of what we can do to start surfacing cost sharing models, ways of pooling risk, other sorts of supports to not only increase the actual amount of capital, in the broader space to sustain these tools. And some of the things that kind of cater to that are if we better understand what the models already are employed and how many tools might be you know, looking at further funding or in need of further funding that we rely on, can we gather more information there through not only landscape analysis and census-like tools, but also doing more of a deep dive to help provide those recommendations to key decision makers. So philanthropic funders, government funders, institutional decision makers, what do they need to essentially create the business case to move towards these tools? That is kind of one key area that I think IOI stands very firmly in. And so we're really working on building out not only that the set of criteria for how we assess what counts as open infrastructure and along which lines, this is something we've heard a real need for even say, for example, someone that's in a library that's looking to make purchasing decisions that advances open technology. What can they put up in front of their colleagues to say, you know, these are the ways in which we're evaluating whether something here is interoperable with our other systems or is open in a way that we feel comfortable with to advance scholarship. Other example would be, say, the European Commission that's looking to build out, say, an open science cloud and is having uh, a request for proposals for different platforms for people to bid on that. You know, can we have something there that we say, when we say open, this is what we mean? And so there's been a couple of different efforts and standards-based efforts to values and principles-based efforts to do that, that we're looking to kind of stitch together so that we can bring some clarity to the space. The second component is really to see what we can do to serve as a key support for those two decision-making groups that are in many ways not only the key drivers of much of the innovation and sustainability for this space, given the capital and the investment, they also reflect very different phases of investment with the philanthropic funders and government funders often supporting the three- to five-year kind of timeline and more on the innovation side, with institutional supporters often carrying the longer-term investment of not only time, but also capital for some of these projects. And there's a whole other variety of business models that are employed or tried out and experimented with in between. And so, you know, can we, for example, if you think of it as an investment firm that has an analytic shop that provides you with targeted recommendations and understandings of, okay, you're looking to take on this amount of risk. Here's what we'd recommend. Can we serve more of that sort of role? Or even there's another example outside of the space I like to bring up being GiveWell. That are very open and transparent about how they rate and assess humanitarian charities and looking at indicators such as cost effectiveness impact per dollar sustainability durability what does that look like if we start to identify some of more of those kind of hard-nosed indicators and, and questions just to look at you know some different measures versus the you know, amount of people and amount of money a certain project's getting i mean you all are very seasoned in this as well. I mean, it could be a project with $300,000 that is incredibly well resourced for what it's aiming to do that is in a better position to scale than a project that's got $5 billion of investment. Like, You need to do a bit more of interrogation. And so I think IOI can help with not only doing that scenario planning, but also helping to bring those examples to bear so that others feel better supported in thinking through operational and developmental sustainability.
2: Fan, thank you. That that really cleared it up for me. Thank you. You are our third executive director
3: on this podcast. So, first of all, thanks for coming on. I read your bio. Your former employers, very prestigious. You got Wikimedia, which is Wikipedia and Mozilla, Creative Commons, like really, really influential organizations that have a huge impact on the open internet. My first question is. How did those organizations set you up for what you're doing now? Because what you just explained is so impressive. (laughs) I, I just like, okay, obviously these past, these former employers or organizations that you worked for had a huge impact in getting you ready for what you're doing now, which is again, very impressive. My second question has to go around the Mozilla Science Lab. So when you're done with that, I want to go just one more question into that. So first of all, how has these organizations shaped you to become the executive director that you are?
0: So my time will start back in the Creative Commons lens. So I actually started as a crime reporter in at the Boston Globe, low-level grunt early 2000s, went from there to working at Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press doing first amendment research, had a phenomenal first amendment law, and this was back when I would say early 2000. So right when you, we started to see you know, various books and momentum around creative commons, but books create, you know, out by Larry Lessing and others on the creative commons board around cyber law and more of the discussion there around how technology and law come together. And so when I originally started working with creative commons, it actually was predated by working with Hal Abelson at MIT, who is a legend in his own right, not only in terms of being one of the founding directors of Creative Commons, but also very much someone that I'm very happy I did not Google before I took a job helping with the research alliance that he was working on with Microsoft around education technology, you know, and understanding his deep, deep roots, not only in computer science, Free Software Foundation, open courseware, I mean, you name it. There's, There's so many areas in which Hal's work has touched. That mentorship relationship not only very literally led to working on the early, you know, what creative commons for science would look like and building out some of the open access infrastructure and the then the open data infrastructure on a number of different levels, but also in terms of understanding the multidimensionality of these various problems that they can't operate in isolation. And I think really instilled in the work that we were doing that it wasn't as black and white of a, you know, okay, we Creative Commons focuses on copyright, so therefore we're going to focus on patents and journal articles. That there were many, many more elements there that needed to be considered, as well as co-designing what those solutions looked like and understanding where there was a need for support, where that aligned with our interests, and how we could then like continue to design and iterate on that. And so I really applaud the work of not only those initial kind of team members, but also those initial board members. Thinking of Helen Abelson, Larry Lessig. Mike Carroll at American University, Jamie Boyle, um, and his work on the public domain at Duke, because they were so heavily invested in our work and really helped shape you know, my thinking in terms of understanding how to you know, build with, not for, to borrow from Lauren Ellen McCann and do so in a way that understands the other elements beyond the, the physical infrastructure, beyond the software, beyond the actual tactical solution, and understanding those social dynamics as well. And, you know, that carried forward with the the work that we did otherwise. I think the very rooted in that community organizer element and, you know, understanding that we may have an initial thesis, but really putting that out for others to help us better understand where those emergent needs are and what we can do to help solve real problems and advancing society is important. The other thing I'll mention, because this came up in some of the work I was doing at Mozilla and building out the science program there. Was that there were oftentimes conversations about, well, you know, you're just focusing on science. You know, what sort of broader benefit does this have for the space? I mean, you all know the deep roots that open source has and, you know, software and the internet have in science. But beyond those initial stories, I think there is also a really interesting kind of proof space that this sort of work allows for because, you know, in terms of moving decisions forward, it's not just talking about researchers, it also t- touches those in the you know education sector, universities, policymakers, for-profit tech, nonprofit tech, all of these various elements that you know by their very nature help bring and help incubate different solutions that you can then apply to broader society. And then the last thing is the to speak to the work that I was doing at Wikimedia, most of my career has been in the programmatic and strategic work, but also being in the nonprofit space for most of that career except for a couple of years in between. Doing fundraising to help build out long term support for those programs. The work that I was doing at Wikimedia, I had the opportunity to join and help build their endowment for Wikipedia and other free knowledge projects. That largely came from a very similar motivation as, you know, joining Invest in Open Infrastructure had in terms of recognizing the fragility and how we are, you know, building out supports for this space. You know, if you think about some of the technologies and also advances that are most needed in society. That's happening in some of the most emergent spaces where we're not going to see that proved out for maybe 5, 10, 15 years. But that doesn't mean that you don't keep doing that sort of innovative work. And this also came at a time, you know, in 2017, where we saw a number of these sort of labs-based R&D operations hit their three to five-year funding mark, if not maybe seven if they're lucky, and get divested because of, you know, funding crunches rather than understanding how critical those were to society. And so the opportunity to join Wikimedia to say, when we talk about sustaining open, can we do so in a way where we don't need to spend the first 20 minutes explaining the value of open and more so just talk about, you know, everyone knows Wikipedia, the brand people love and know and love. They rely on, it's embedded in our day-to-day lives. How can that help not only Provide real long term support for that work and that ecosystem, but also wedge that door open so that we can hopefully have a different conversation about what it means to not just endow something like that, but treat that as the institution with permanence. That we need to start talking about some of these other tools that otherwise I feel got caught in the well, I can't touch the columns on the outside of the building. So, you know, what do you mean it's going to be around for a long time? So, hopefully, helping to shift that conversation.
3: And that's how you were shaped to do what you do now. Okay. Mozilla Science Lab. For those who don't know, it's mozillascience.github.io. You have a call to action called get credit for your code. What is that or what was that? And how did your team come up with it? Just the history. I, I, I'm sure, curious.
0: Absolutely. So Mozilla had a number of community-driven programs. They've since deprecated and sort of brought those kind of best elements into the broader work. There was a shift around 2017, 2018. Um, but when I joined in 2013, understanding you know, that there were some really deep relationships that we wanted to develop to advance certain aims to support and mobilize others on, on the open web in not only science, but advocacy, education, et cetera. The science lab in its early days, we had a couple of key Tenets that we were exploring. So we were looking at the digital literacy. So in terms of computational training, in terms of, you know, the further development of resources, including like the open, what the open leadership curriculum originally started as was a working open workshop of really taking to task our assumptions that people knew what we meant when we said that we work in the open and actually providing some resourcing there. But beyond that, in the community development component, we really wanted to start to demonstrate what it meant when you had the longstanding history of Mozilla in the open source space brought to bear on the research community, as well as with all of these other sort of tenants around open access and open data and open code and and broader open science. A lot of opens to include in a sentence, but you know what I mean. And so that prototype actually came from a number of discussions we were having with others who were thinking about this space. In not only the data repository side, also in terms of colleagues that we had at GitHub that came from this space as well, to say what would an initial prototype be to start showing what a you know future state of this work could look like? You know, are there ways in which we can take what we've already started to apply in the you know, data space of taking, for example, the long-standing history of digital repositories for content and preprints and and papers and you know all of that element there, can we start to apply that to you know having data then be treated as a as a research object and be cited and made available to others now what does that look like if we further extend that to code beyond just the repositories themselves, but starting to say, okay, you know this is something that we know in terms of research software engineers you know their publication record might be different, but they you know, it might not necessarily be as prolific as other researchers and in their labs, but their contribution might be much more significant in some ways because of the work that they're creating that others heavily rely on. And so that was kind of one of the initial demonstrations. Those tools that we kind of crafted were meant to serve as conversation starters and experiments and then have been picked up and brought into other elements of dialogue across a number of different groups. So you know richard i know you know you've been involved in some of the software sustainability space so you know carrying that forward into that conversation into some of the scholarly communication conversation and the last thing that i'll mention is like going back to like the initial creative commons work that we were doing in this space when we were talking about the materials involved in research this was back in 2006 to 2010 we were very much anchored in the physical material so like the cell lines the you know mouse models which you know, just in a matter of a few years, we saw very rapidly evolve into also including the underlying software and code. And so, you know, what can we do to start to lay that groundwork, show people what's possible and hopefully start to change behaviors and, and minds?
1: Thank you so much. Uh, it's really wonderful just uh, the breadth of knowledge you draw on because I feel like it's just everything talking at once and all these and it's so, so high level that it's, it's beautiful to watch. I didn't know that you were a reporter at the Globe. I apologize because I've been saying Spotlight, kind of in reference to Spotlight, every time we have our Spotlight episode. And I just want to say, I'm sorry, but maybe also get permission to keep doing
3: that. I don't know if I can. I I,
0: I can't credit myself (laughs) on Spotlight. My desk was right outside of where they were. But I mean, it was- Oh, wait
3: a minute. Didn't they have like a movie about that? They did. Spotlight, (laughs) yeah. The
1: movie about Spotlight, which is the investigative department of the Globe. So I, I never thought that this would happen. So first off, just that. Um, great movie. Everyone should go watch it. It's wonderful. Another thing I wanted to say is that I was just a person in a chair. I had a scholarship to go to most of the WSSSPE conferences. So don't blame me for being involved at all. I, I'm very little. Your name is actually much more important there and you are much more included in those conversations. So thank you so much. I have two larger questions to follow up on. One of them is you've mentioned Elsevier at the beginning and some acquisitions and I'm not sure that all of our listeners know how big a force Elsevier is in the research world. And I know that it's probably hard to talk about in some way as the executive director of IOI, but I would be really curious to get your take just for our listeners to describe what Elsevier is and how they represent what's happening in academia right now. And then I wanna I eventually move on to, to COVID because I think that's While you started this initiative before COVID happened, I think it's particularly interesting now what's happening and I want to know how you've adapted and how you've changed and what's happening moving forward. So could you describe Elsevier a a
0: tiny bit? You bet. So Elsevier is one of, there's a whole spectrum of uh, publishers in this broader space. Elsevier sort of represents one of the largest, most established publishers, but also very known for its kind of closed access models, many of these publishers have started to bring in more kind of open access imprints or hybrid journals and a number of other things. But in terms of the broad spectrum from, you know, the most open access, affordable journal system, if you even look at the open journal systems and the public knowledge project, public library of science, things like that all the way up to say Nature and then Elsevier. Elsevier is really on that far end of the spectrum in terms of the number of articles and journals that they support, but also in terms of being one of the most cash-rich businesses in the space. And so there have been a number of efforts that have, and they also have a, you know, an extensive research intelligence operation as well, they are extremely, extremely profitable. And so when it comes to, and this kind of ties into some of the COVID elements as well, when we talk about the broader sustainability for many of these tools, there are essentially kind of what we think of as fire sale moments, where, you know, when there is a big strain on the system, and right now we're looking at an economic shock we have not seen in our lifetime, as I think many, many are aware of, looking at who the cash-rich businesses are that to potentially come and acquire elements or even mine for parts, certain pieces of the research infrastructure. And many of these tools and services also help not only provide kind of significant functions, but also have data that's really attractive to an organization like Elsevier. So it's not necessarily about just recreating or providing a stable home or incubating many of these tools. I think there's been a, an issue in terms of what those acquisitions do to skew the broader incentives, whereas say, you know, an opportunity or a piece of infrastructure that lives within an institution is more likely to not only have different levels of governance and be aligned with the values and mission of an institution in higher education versus, you know, looking at the profit, you know, driven incentives and and margins and decisions that some of these for-profit entities would have.
1: And just to be clear, they're a cash cow because they sell their journals and their articles at a heavy markup back to the scientists who make them. Yes. Generally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just and for I mean, those of you who don't know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's, there's. Uh, I would, uh, you know, encourage anyone that wants to really dig into this. The organization Spark, S-P-A-R-C, is an advocacy organization in the space, and they've got a number of really incredible resources that start looking at, you know, some of the broader issues. And there's quite a lot that's been written about this online if you do a search. But there are so many elements in terms of, you know, the cost of labor, so many elements of this in terms of not only the researcher having, the, like having to pay to publish their article to then not have access and needing to pay for it to receive it in return to, you know, the citations and all of the underlying metadata that's associated with it, that being sold back to institutions The review process, which is based on volunteer labor, being something that then is charged for, for the quote unquote editorial process. I'm not saying that they don't, you know, offer, you know, some services on top of some of this stuff, but it is really a, in in my personal opinion, a dated model and one that we're starting to see more scrutiny, especially in times of COVID where, you know, there are a number of efforts that were already underway to look at disrupting the broader subscription model to these journals and the library level. If you do a search for big deal cancellations, there's a number of universities that have started to look at what it looks like to shake up that reliance on some of the for-profit journals and bundles that are provided through Elsevier. Just as a quick example, there's an individual at Harvard. uh, Stuart Scheiber is in the computer science department. Who a number of years ago, this is back before we started to see open access policies issued across the universities is one of the first open access policies he went around to i want to say it was seventy to eighty of you know libraries on the in the Harvard sort of network went around to all of them and pulled what they are subscribing to those lists and said, "Oh you know we've got a number of these groups that are subscribing to the same thing. What if we just start crossing things out and create an interlibrary loan? That seems like a great way to save money right and then What they found was when they put that back in front of Elsevier, they just increased the price for Harvard. And that led to really shifting the conversation instead of an individual saying, I don't want to pay for this article or, you know, I want to make sure I retain my rights. It became the Faculty of Arts and Sciences versus Elsevier, which entirely changed that negotiation. So we are starting to see an entirely different wave, especially in the face of COVID and the budget crunches that libraries are currently facing accelerating that conversation around what it looks like and and shortening the the time that would otherwise be needed to make a big shift like that to cancel those deals and we're talking millions of dollars in savings for these institutions so those are some really interesting things to track
1: which is fascinating especially right now as a lot of universities are running out of money their students aren't coming back their international students aren't coming back funding is really difficult cambridge is going entirely online for the next year which is fascinating. It's one of the first universities in the UK to do that. Probably won't be the last. Mm-hmm. Pia has also joined this call as a panelist. Hi, Pia. Yeah.
4: Sorry, I'm and late. I want to
1: make sure I have space. No, it's okay. I want to make sure that there's space for you if you have any particular question. I know you wanted to talk about COVID. You mentioned something in the chat. so.
4: Yeah, I was just I because now. I didn't want to ask something that had already been answered. <laughs> so I was just checking you. Just maybe more broadly if you can speak at like I can't even imagine the impact of COVID on on the ecosystem in general, right? On the education ecosystem in general. And I've never been fully in academia, like, you know, so I can't even I don't know, the I I don't imagine that the space is very resilient. So like I was just wondering if you can maybe speak a little bit about like the broad impact and yeah, like what plans are there going forward? How are folks thinking about this?
0: No, that's a great question. And P, as I'd mentioned before, I mean, my first day on the job was when the city went into lockdown, and so I think I got maybe three days in, to you know, starting at IOI, going through some of the documents that have been crafted by steering committee members, until I realized like that none of this seems relevant anymore. Like we're in a place where we're radically seeing uh, scholarly communication transform on a day-to-day basis, and we're we're in a front-row seat, right? Not only with libraries that were rapidly closing at the time, businesses that are shuttering. The reallocation shock in terms of what that means for labor and staff and all of that, as well as elements in terms of infrastructure that we're starting to see radically shift in terms of not only scaling and the reliance on those tools and the need, but really pressure testing them in in really different ways. And so, invest in open infrastructure as an entity that can provide support and targeted research and insights as a trusted partner for key decision makers in the space, kind of funders. And institutional decision makers, I think, is in a really interesting spot. And what we not only shared out with a number of colleagues in this space, but also our steering committee was, you know, where can we be most helpful? We know that in conversations with deans and provosts and you know, library administrators and others that are, you know, at at the heart of all this, that there is a need for scenario planning, but also the capacity to do so, given the focus on dedicating staff to emergent needs, such as librarians literally putting materials into the hands of their staff, right, for online teaching and learning. Knowing that there's also universities in terms of their resilience, they operate very slowly in many cases, frustratingly slowly for many, but there is a small window that we're looking at right now to to shift the way in which higher ed and the academy operate. And so on our end, what we've started to put forward and bring together some initial partners, which we'll be writing about more in the coming days, as a piece of work and research over the next few months to start to say, okay, listen, we have an opportunity to shape the future of open scholarship. We are going to be looking at a radically different way of operating in 12 to 18 months in higher ed. What can we do to start coordinating that planning as well as looking at you know possible interventions, crosswalks with open services, cost benefit models, as well as models for sharing resources and also risk that can not just lock us into our existing commercial relationships and and vendors. And I say we being individuals in the higher ed space, but really use this time to, you know, instead of looking at that kind of survival mentality, looking at what we can look at to, you know, recover and and build that resilience. And so there's um, some work that I've been looking at in terms of preparedness models from the public health space and how you coordinate, you know, national, regional uh, decision making and also build capacities out, knowing this is not just a one-time deal, but we need to also understand how we can further coordinate this level of cooperation moving forward. And we've got about you know 10 to 15 institutions that have signed on so far, and we're going to be putting out a broader call for interviews so we can get a better sense as to their realities and start synthesizing that, which I will share with you all as well, because we'd, we'd love to gather as much information as we can.
4: That can't be seen as space as competitive as the <laughs> academic space, right? Like bringing everyone together to collaborate seems like a daunting task. I'm, I'm really glad that you're taking that. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think what we can provide is, again, the, the understanding is there, that this is a really significant shift and that someone needs to look at the multiple dimensions you know, involved in, for example, the future of university presses, scholarly societies, research data infrastructure the fact that openness will be more radically accepted, if not demanded, and we need to look at interoperability. These are really big problems that we need to accelerate the timeline for. And so, you know, I think we're in a great position to help serve as a a sort of workhorse to help not only coordinate that uh, information gathering and distillation, but also to help provide some fresh perspectives as to what that could look like.
1: A huge shout out to the Schmidt Foundation for funding this work. Thank you so much. That is so awesome that you're doing this. When I first entered the space, I always was, had this constant FOMO. Oh, I should be in that project. Oh, I should be in that project. This project's doing the most good. But as I <laughs> get older and more wizened, one of the things I'm learning is that you know, they're all, we all work together and it is multidisciplinary. It is multivariable. Every, there's, they all have to interconnect. So thank you so much for serving as a central node for that web of interconnection, in particular to do with open infrastructure. If I am a software developer or if I work at a university or if I'm a researcher, how can I get involved with your project? How can I find you? Where do I go to sign up?
0: So we will be sharing that out in the next few days. But at the current moment in time, feel free to reach out. My email is kt at investinopen.org. And I would love to kind of connect with as many people who are interested. Um, you can also kind of sign on to some of these broader principles on the website, but we'll have you know a, a kind of broader mechanism and call for participation in the next few days.
1: Thank you so much. Looking forward to that. And this podcast may also go out after that has happened. So th- those you of go. you who are listening, go back in the past and look there. Most good things are there as well. Now it's time for a spotlight, which I finally get to say in an accent with some <laughs> sort of affirmation without feeling like I'm totally culturally appropriating a city that's 200 miles from my home. Spotlight, where we talk about really cool things that have helped us out. I'm just going to go first. The way I got involved in coding, the first time I thought to myself, I am a coder. This is the coolest thing ever was actually with BibTeX. BibTeX is a super sweet open software to do bibliographies for science. It's part of LaTeX. The first thing I did was I made a BibTeX language that matched my university style guide. And that was like how I learned to code. It's like Pascal or something. It was horrible, but it worked. Everyone should check out Bib Tech with an X at the end. Super cool. Justin, what do you got?
3: Undraw.co. We use it for CodeFund and we're going to start using it for the Code Fund newsletter. I did some prototypes last night. I was up to like 12 because <laughs> it's just so cool. And if you ever need like an illustration, it's they're completely open source. And I think Creative Commons as well. I don't know. But either way,
2: you could use it. And yeah.
1: Thank you so much. Eric, do you have anything for us today?
2: I do. I'd like to give a shout out to betterhelp.com during this whole COVID crisis. And I think I'm not alone in the fact that mental issues are becoming more of an issue recently. We even talked about that before the call. And I decided to reach out and get some help for myself. And I signed up betterhelp.com, found an amazing therapist who really matched me very well and uh, still a local therapist. So I've tried therapy before and, and it's kind of a hit and miss depending on who you go to. So it's almost like a dating site for, you know, for a therapist. And then when you get matched up, you can work with them either via SMS or, or chat. You can do voice calls or you can do video calls. And so I've been having weekly video calls and, and it's been a very, very good experience. I, I highly recommend them, betterhelp.com. Uh, f- just real quick from someone who
3: works with Eric every day it's like night and day so i don't know <laughs> if it's anecdotal it's probably anecdotal but like uh, yeah check I, I out. don't know
2: how to take that but cool thanks <laughs> <laughs> well, also <laughs> yeah before therapy eric was a nightmare <laughs> no 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 you weren't a nightmare but you were really depressed and i was worried and yeah, now no. now you're like you're chipper i'm i'm much more chipper yes
1: Therapy also sometimes take years to work, but I'm so glad that you brought that up, Eric. Thank you so much for normalizing the fact that we all need mental health help right now during this <sighs> horrible catastrophe. So thank you so much. I'm
2: sorry, go I'm going to throw one more thing in real quick. And for those of you who I think the majority of you probably don't want to go to therapy or or think maybe you don't need therapy, but there are some things that you could take from it, there's a website where you can get all of their worksheets. So in therapy, a lot of it's all about finding the issues and you get these worksheets and you get these documents to help understand how how it all works and how to respond and become mindful. Sorry, I'm ranting a little bit, but I'll share in the show notes on this. But I think it's a really important resource. I think it's called therapyaid.com or therapistaid.com. I'll figure it out and I'll link it in the show notes. But even if you don't want to go to therapy or you don't feel like you need therapy, this is a really great resource to find support documents ways to support yourself in ways that therapists might i I, and i found it very very cool that they shared that with me
1: thank you so much again
4: cool so i'm argentinian so for me like therapy and psychoanalysis is like you know it's like as common as it gets like 12 years of freudian analysis therapy here my dearest so you know what (laughs) All right. So my spotlight for today is very funny. It's very similar to Justin's, which of course I didn't have a spotlight. And I remember what he said his, so whatever it's called Excalibur. And I actually used it yesterday to do a mockup, which I haven't had never done. And it's ugly, but you know, it worked. So Excalibur, but Excalibur.com open source project to do really cool, easy mockups there.
1: Awesome. Uh, that's Excalibur, right? Excalibur. Excalibur. Okay. Thank you. Excalibur. Thank you so much. And Caitlin, last but not least.
0: So on my end, I've been really thinking through deeply the ways in which we can better work together and what are the mechanisms to enable that, knowing that there's still a significant amount of work. So this is kind of open source practice versus open source project. But from a former colleague at Creative Commons, who's now at Sage Bionetworks, an open health organization. I want to shout out their Portable Informed Consent Toolkit, which is fascinating in terms of the various ways in which you can not only design to better inform individuals as to what they're signing away, I think that there's elements there that whether or not you're mounting your own research study are just really thoughtful in terms of making sure that people understand and that you're building for accessibility and readability the experience that you're looking to draw others into. And so this is an experience where they are looking at that for, you know, broader recruitment for individuals for big research studies, but taking, you know, a little bit more from like the creative commons mindset of what can we do to make sure that there are understandings as to what you're signing away, what rights you can retain, what that experience looks like, which is just, it's a, it's a huge amount of work, but also something I think we can carry into a lot of other parts of our lives.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. I love that. I love this conversation. I really hope IOI does really well and that we all sign up and help out if we can. And thank you you for holding a space today. That's
0: it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
2: Thanks, everybody. Thank
1: you. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.